Thanks, Alex. Well, uh, it'd be good if you keep that uh, page open. Um, I must confess, I almost uh, dumped Nahum this week and uh, uh, went back to uh, Micah chapter 7, which we didn't do justice to last week, uh, because it's so full of blood and gore, isn't it? Um, As you read it, you think, uh, what are we going to get out of that? Uh, I hope the reading gave you a sense of what's in the book of Nahum, the three chapters, Uh, but I'd urge you to go home uh, after the service and read it for yourselves as well and just let God's word uh, flow over you because, uh, and, and sink into your hearts because actually there's a really strong message here in the book of Nahum. Begin, uh, let's pray before we begin, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that you speak to us by your Holy Spirit, even from the dusty old parts of the Old Testament where we don't go very often. We thank you and praise you that you are God who spoke, spoke then and you are God who speaks now. May your voice be loud and clear for us this morning, I pray. Amen. So you uh, remember a few weeks back we preached on uh, the book of Jonah, uh, and obviously uh, Jonah there goes to Nineveh. Well, whereas uh, Jonah speaks about the reprieve of Nineveh, Nahum speaks about the destruction of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which was one of the world's greatest empires. We can have the... Uh, First sign, there he is. Uh, the sort of the, the uh, green, yellowy bit in the middle, that is the extent of the Assyrian Empire at its height. It shrunk a little bit a li- little bit later on, but at the time that we're looking at here in the Book of Nahum, it covered that whole wide area, going right down to uh, Egypt and right up to northern Iraq. Uh, Nineveh is... Oh, hang on, I've got a pointer. Hang on. Ooh, oh, there it goes. Nineveh is around there. That's Nineveh. And Judah is that tiny little yellow corner in the, in the bottom there. So just look at the size of Judah compared to the Assyrian Empire. At the height of Nineveh's power, as the capital city of Assyria, its city walls were 12 kilometres long, and they were wide enough for two war chariots to pass in opposite directions on top of the wall. There was an elaborate system of canals and rivers and, and moats around the walls of Nineveh, uh, which helped to defend the city, but in, in theory. But they also helped to irrigate large parks outside the city walls for the people to enjoy, which also had uh, zoos where they kept lions and things. And here they are. Uh, they liked lions, and here they are in a lion hunt. This is a, uh, a relief or a, a stone carving, which was found in the royal palace in Nineveh in the 19th century, and of course is now to be found in where the British Museum. Um, in the British Museum, you can see uh, the, the, the wallpaper, effectively, from the Royal Palace of Nineveh. Uh, and as you can see, they like lions. Uh, they were also pretty cruel. If you have the next one. Oh, look. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Technology's failing us. Oh. We don't need the internet server. There we go. Right. There we have a picture of a man having his eyes gorged out. Nice, isn't it? A bit of blood and gore for you on Sunday morning. And here they are uh, decapitating somebody. It's not sort of wallpaper that I'd like to have in my bedroom wall, I don't think. So not much is known about Nahum, the prophet, uh, except that he appears to have lived in Judah, and his prophecy was written around 650 BC, 651 BC, thereabouts. It's uh, after the fall of Thebes in Egypt, uh, which fell to the Assyrians, and that's mentioned in the text, but it's about 30 to 40 years before the actual fall of Nineveh itself to the allied armies of Babylon, Syria, and Medes, 
which began in April uh, 612 BC. And uh, a few months later, in July, the invaders had managed to block up the canals and the moats that surrounded the city. Uh, they'd thrown a load of rubbish in and made ramps and things like that. And the water flooded. And because the water flooded, it undermined the foundations of the walls. And the walls began to fall. And that's how the invading armies managed to get into the city. By the 10th of August, the town was completely sacked, completely destroyed, and the Medes went home with all the bounty. And this is what you see today. This is Nineveh today. It's known as Tel Kunyunjik, so I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, which means mound of many sheep. And there you see the sheep. It's just outside Mosul in northern Iraq. And here's another one. This is the same mound, but as you can see in the right corner, they've reconstructed some of the city walls so you can see what they would look like, but they are modern reconstructions. So Nineveh today is just a mound raised by sheep. The empire never rose again, nor did the city. So why uh, bother with the book of Nahum? What does it tell us today? Well, Romans 8.31, which is the verse I read earlier on, asks this question. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, Nahum asks a different question. It asks, what's it like to have God against us? Not for us, but against us. And there are two parts to what I want us to learn today. Firstly, we need to talk about God's anger towards our sin. God's anger against sin. Secondly, we need to think about how we can change. And what I want us to learn is how we can change, not by our own effort and our own strong will, but how we can change by faith. So firstly, God's anger against sin. The repentance after Jonah appears to have been short-lived, and here they are again, back under God's wrath as a result of their terrible sin. This time there's going to be no warning. Nahum stays in Judah and prophesies to the Judean people. It's a word of comfort to the oppressed people, not a word of warning to the oppressors as Jonah was. Nahum makes God's intentions to destroy the city perfectly clear. We're going to be flicking through the book, um, so you need to have your uh, pages ready. So verse 2, chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Got the message? If not, Nahum repeats it. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Verse 8. With an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Remember that? Remember how they destroyed the walls in the end by making the moat and the canals overflow? Verse 10. They will be consumed like dry dry stubble. Verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Verse 14, the Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. A firm decision has been made, in other words. You will have no descendants to bear your name. Chapter 2 and verse 7, it is decreed that the city will be exiled and carried away. So it's worth reading the book uh, through when you get home, as I said. The attack here, the destruction of Nineveh is described in, in poetic, in graphic poetic detail. There's frenetic activity in in chapter 2 and verse 4. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. There's real terror 
in, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. It's slaves, girls, moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Chapter, uh, verse 10. She is pillaged, plundered and stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. There's shame for the once proud empire. Where now is the lion's den. You remember the lion's? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and the lioness went. uh, Chapter 3 and verse 5. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Chapter 3 and verse 16. The underworld of Nineveh rise up and take what they can before before they run away. You've increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky, but like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. And the once proud armies flee from the fight too. Your guards are like lotus, locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day, but when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. There's defeat and death. Chapter 3 and verse 3, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead bodies, without number, people stumbling over corpses. And so it goes on. Chapter 3 and verse 19, nothing can heal your wounds, your injury is fatal. Most chilling of all, in, in some respects, is there's no regrets from anybody. Chapter 3 and verse 7, all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh's in ruins, who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Verse 19, everyone who hears news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And that last line is what reveals God's motives for destroying Nineveh. They were cruel. Chapter 3, verse 4, they were sorcerers. They were enslavers. They were idolaters. They were witches. Chapter 3 and verse 1, they were liars, plunderers, oppressors. Chapter 2 and verse 10, they were drunkards. Verse 9, they plotted against the Lord. Chapter 1 and verse 11, their rulers plotted evil and counseled wickedness. All of this meant that the Lord is against you. You see that? 2 verse 13, I'm against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Chapter 3, verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, of course, it's not like our anger or jealousy. This is not snap anger. Or selfish jealousy. This is the result of having a God who is completely unable to live side by side with evil because he is the good, the sovereign God. All of their actions described here are anathema to him. Their behavior is despicable. This is anger and vengeance that judges wickedness. It is jealousy to ensure that his, God's good rule, prevails on earth rather than the wicked counsel of evil men. God is against them. But do you know what? It's not just a prophecy against Syria, Assyria. It is a prophecy against all sin. It tells us how God feels about our sin. It's not just a picture of the final destruction and judgment of Assyria. It is a picture of God's judgment upon all of our sin. I am against you. I am against you, 
declares the Lord Almighty. It's poetry. Writers turn to poetry when they want to make an emotional impact upon their hearers. So read this as poetry. It's not a literal picture of God's future actions, but it is meant to bring home to our hearts the fearsome reality of God's future judgments. For Nineveh this time there is no warning, but for us there is. Here in Nahum and in the rest of the Bible as well. So how do we respond to this chilling warning? Well, it said uh, that just before the death of the actor W.C. Fields, a friend went to visit him in hospital and was surprised to find him thumbing uh, through a Bible. Asked what he was doing with a Bible, Fields replied, I'm looking for the loopholes. But there are no loopholes. Just as here there are no get-outs for the Ninevites this time, the command has been given, the decision has been made, the Lord is against you because of your sin. So how do we respond? Just as an aside almost, this word was written for the comforts of the oppressed Israelites. And I know that some of you have been hurt very badly by other people's sin. It's good news, isn't it? It's a comfort to know that in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to plot revenge. We don't have to look for natural justice. We don't even have to let our emotions fester over many years because we have a Lord who will not leave the guilty unpunished. But what of our own sin? How are we meant to change? Well, if you've uh, uh, come here and you're visiting and you're not a Christian here this morning, it's great to have you. It's worth asking this question, isn't it? Is the Lord against you? The first step towards finding peace and fulfillment in this life, I believe, is to realise that we have actually done wrong. We sometimes deny ourselves and we think, actually, we're okay, we're quite a good person. But we have done wrong in our lives. And a great and a good God, if God exists, a great and a good God is bound to punish that wrong. Paul, the apostle, explains in Romans 8 and verse 31 why God can be for us and not against us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, if we put our trust in Jesus, God's Son, given up for us, then we are chosen, made right with God. We're made more than conquerors over our own sin, in fact. And then, as Paul asks, we, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We just have to trust in God. Here's a little puzzle for you. Imagine, uh, if you will, imagine you are uh, in the Wild West and you're in one of those wagon caravans heading out west towards California, I guess, uh, uh, going through the big plains in the middle. My geography in America is appalling. Um, and there's a, there's a fire in the, in the grass, in the dry grass, and the fire is coming towards you because the wind is blowing it towards you. It's spread out far and wide, and you see this fire coming towards you, burning the bush in front of you. 
And you're, here you are with, uh, with uh, 20 wagons in your caravan. What are you going to do? You're moving slowly. You're pulled by oxen. What do you do? What do you do in those circumstances? Any yeses? You can't run away because, you know, the wind's blowing this far too quick. Burn a bit in the middle. Sorry? And stay in it. That's right. You set fire to the grass behind you. And then when that fire has burnt out, you go and stand on the burnt out area of ground. That way, when the main fire comes towards you, it will not be able to reach you because there'll be no more grass to, fall, uh, to fuel the fire. Now imagine if that really happens. Imagine if you were in that caravan. Wouldn't you want to say, are you sure we're not going to be burned up? Are you sure? And Paul Beverly will turn around to you and say, he said, my child here saying, the flames cannot reach us. For we are standing where the fire has already been. And that's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of what it's like to be a believer who is safe in Christ. The fires of God's judgment burned themselves out on Christ. And all who are in Christ are safe forever. For they are standing where the fire has already burned. So are you going to stand where the fire has already burned today? John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, said, the faithful by by repentance anticipate his judgment. The faithful by repentance anticipate his judgment. But I'm not finished yet because I want to ask Christians, you Christians here, why do you still sin? No, let's uh, rephrase that. Why do we still sin? God hates our sin. With a jealous and a vengeful heart. He desperately wants us to be in good relationship with him and to know the best that he has prepared for us. So why do we go on rebelling against him? And how are we going to change? Perhaps some of you think sometimes, God will answer my prayers today because I've been good. Or perhaps you think, God won't bless, God won't bless me today because I let him down. Perhaps sometimes you think, I need to make it up to God because I sinned. Or I need to change so that God will accept me on that day of judgment. If you answer yes to any of those questions, then perhaps you're trying to change because you're trying to impress God. Perhaps sometimes you think uh, you want to ensure that people know about the good things you've done. Perhaps you tell little white lies to cover up your failings. Perhaps you imagine that people will be really impressed with you and how spiritual you are. Or reverse, perhaps sometimes you feel you let yourself down because of your sin. If you answer yes to any of those questions, then maybe you're trying to impress other people, or even yourself. And in the end, none of those things are going to help you to change. You see, the focus is all entirely wrong. Because it's all about us and what we're doing rather than what Christ has already done. Christ will have none of it. He says on the, on the cross, the work is finished, it is finished. Imagine if we then go answer, answer back. Well, not quite, I just need to finish off this job. I still need to improve this aspect of my life in order to win God's blessing. 
It's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet Christians, and I bet you do it all the time, just as I do, we always go back to what we can do for God. How many of you, when you fall into sin, your first reaction is to go to God and promise, I will never do that again? I've done that. But it never works, does it? You see, as Christians, we all have this tendency to try and step back from faith and try to be our own saviour. That's what's happening when our response to our ongoing struggle with sin is to try and impress God or other people or ourselves with our own resilience, our own control, our own good works. Now, of course, some of these things are good things. But we must never forget that the work of sanctification or making us holy and doing God's will in our lives is God's work. It's not ours. It's God's work. So once we've been saved by faith or justified by faith, we have a new identity. We have new DNA, if you like. You see, we're sons of our Father. We are the bride of the Son. We're the home of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm taller and quite a bit thinner, thank you, uh, than my dad was at my age. But that doesn't stop my laugh being a bit like his and my interests being very similar to his. It's inevitable. His DNA is inside of me. So we need to truly believe in our lives that God's DNA is inside of us, his spirit. And our motive to change is not to impress God or anyone else, but to enjoy everything that having God's DNA inside of us means. And amongst other things, it means this. It means to enjoy freedom from sin and the power of the Holy Spirit. It means to delight, it, to delight in our status as the sons and daughters of God. And what do we find as Christians? When instead of trying to save ourselves through discipline and hard work, our first reaction after disobedience is to bring our sins to Christ. Well, I think we find what the people of Judah found. They found that God is gracious. So we don't have to prove ourselves to him or anyone else. Verse 3 of chapter 1. The Lord is slow to anger. Verse 12. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah... I will afflict you no more. Verse 15, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaimed peace. Chapter 2 and verse 2, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The Lord will restore our peace if we seek his mercy and his grace. We also find that God is great. Therefore, we don't have to control and do everything in our lives. Verse 3, the Lord is great in power. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds and the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. We find that God is glorious. We don't need to fear others. How many of our struggles with our sin is because we fear what other people think rather than we fear God? And yet in verse 5, the mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. And finally we see that God is good too. We don't have to look elsewhere for our satisfaction or fulfilment because verse 7 says the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So what should we do when we struggle with our own sin which God hates so much? So often our first reaction is to say, I will never do this again, as I said. Or I will change this by myself. 
Now, sometimes we do need to make these changes and we do need to take actions to reduce or remove temptations from our lives or, or make circumstances less conducive to disobedience. But our first reaction, our first prayer, should be remember God's mercy in Christ. Because in Christ, the Lord is slow to anger. In Christ, the Lord has great power over our lives. In Christ, the Lord is able to use us for his glory. In Christ, we find that the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. Jesse Ryle, the Anglican bishop, said this, If we would be sanctified, our course is clear and plain. We must begin with Christ. We must go to him as sinners, with no plea but that of utter needs, and cast our souls on him by faith. If we would grow in holiness and become more sanctified, we must continually go on as we began and be ever making fresh applications to Christ. Tim Chester, who wrote a book I'm going to talk about in a minute, said, we became, we became Christians by faith in Jesus. We stay Christians by faith in Jesus. And we grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. It's as if there was two feasts. The feast of God and the feast of sin. The feast of Judah, if you like, on the one hand, and the feast that Ninevites were so-called enjoying on the other hand. We're invited to both. God invites us to find satisfaction and joy in him. Sin entices us with its lies to look for satisfaction in disobedience. So all of us are double-booked in our lives. We're only tempted by sin because it promises so much. Instant gratification, an escape from stress and worries, self-justification, sweet revenge maybe, and yet it never delivers, and it charges such a high price. Broken lives, broken relationships, broken hopes. Ultimately, as fallen Ninevites, sin will lead only to one thing, that's death. But God offers us an alternative feast, a feast that satisfies. He offers delight for our souls. And the motivation for change and holiness is simply this, that God's feast is so much better because God truly is gracious and great and glorious and good. And the price tag for his feast says no cost. It's a gift to us all. So which feast are we going to attend today? And next time we sin, don't let your first prayer be, oh God, I will do this about it. Let it be, oh God, Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who went through that fire of judgment on our behalf. Thank you for your Holy Spirit living in me. Let's pray. And I'm going to use the prayer of John Calvin in his commentary on Nahum. And it's written in Old English, so you're going to have to listen. John Calvin wrote this in the 16th century. Grant, almighty God, that as thou settest before us here, as in a mirror, how dreadful thy wrath is, we may be humbled before thee, and of our own selves cast ourselves down,
that we may not be laid prostrate by thy awful power. O grant that we may by this instruction be really prepared for repentance and so suppliantly deprecate that punishment which we daily deserve through our transgressions. That in the meantime we may also be transformed into the image of thy Son and put off all our depraved lusts and be cleansed from our vices until we shall at length appear in confidence before thee and be gathered among thy children, that we may enjoy the eternal inheritance of thy heavenly kingdom, which has been obtained for us by the blood of thy Son. Amen.